Thanks for listening to Unburnable. If you're new to the series, please check it out from episode one to follow the full story behind this unprecedented legal battle. Please spread the word by sharing online and rating this episode on iTunes. And if you want to find out more about what you can do to support the court case, please visit savethearctic.org forward slash unburnable. The seriousness of the environmental crisis that we will face if we don't change what we're doing is such that we are obliged for our very self-interest to think in global terms. We have no choice. Three months before the case goes to court, people from across the world who are fighting climate cases in their own countries all come together for the first time in a single location. It's a gathering of people who have moved beyond the narrow focus of national interests, who understand that climate change connects us all together as global citizens. We sometimes forget how connected we all are. We're all just humans. We love, we fear, we dream, we eat, we sleep. They converge on a place which has come to embody the conflict between nature and fossil fuels, the Lofoten Islands in northern Norway. And this August, our team travelled to meet them. Here I have found my paradise. I will never go away. It is a very changing landscape when you drive through. There's the midnight sun and the northern lights. Small cute fishing communities scattered around really, you know, rugged mountains. And when I put up a picture on Instagram, uh, people are like, oh, are you in Thailand again? And I'm like, no, this is Norway, it's Lofoten. Tucked up in northern Norway, above the Arctic Circle, the Lofoten Islands form one of the world's most awe-inspiring archipelagos. Though Norway as a whole is spoilt with abundant natural beauty, the rare wilderness of these islands stands out in particular. Despite its northerly location, the warmth of the Gulf Stream gives the Foten a much milder climate than other parts of the world at the same latitude. These nutrient-rich waters also mean that the islands are home to the world's largest cold-water coral reef, as well as large populations of Arctic cod, breathing life into a thriving fishing industry which has formed the backbone of the local economy for a long time. I am in the fishing since uh, 1979. I started fishing with my father. At, uh, I was only 15 years when I started. And I throw up every day. <laughs> when the Norwegian oil industry prides itself on being 50 years old and Norwegian fisheries is 1,000 years old. And the fishing industry is the reason that Lofoten exists as it does today. The first settlers would go up to, to Lofoten to exploit the rich marine resources. Two, three hundred years ago, the income for Norway as a country came a lot from Lofoten, the fishery in Lofoten. Fishermen around here are, are good at managing their fisheries because they're also depending on the fish to come back the next year, right? The archipelago is also rich to another resource, however. 
Beneath the islands lie almost 1.3 billion barrels of oil, worth over $65 billion in today's prices. It's a place which has been the, the central grounds for the Norwegian oil debate for the last 20 years. In six weeks we will have the parliamentary uh, elections, which will really determine the fate of these areas, whether it should remain as it is today with fisheries and uh, untouched nature, or if it should be allowed any drilling here. Public opinion is deeply divided over whether or not this oil should be extracted. Supporters point towards the Norwegian government's own estimates that oil drilling could bring hundreds of jobs to the local area. I don't think it's black and white. I think we should look, look into it and not take the position that I'm against. In, in all kind of industry, especially in the coast, we are totally bound to oil. Opponents argue that any drilling poses serious risks both to tourism and to the local fishing industry. And our seismic surveys that would scare away the fish and could damage uh, juvenile fish. Most of us actually doesn't understand what threat we are living under at the moment. And we have plots farther south. Uh, and if we have a blowout, like the consequences or the circumstances for Lofoten would be horrible. No, no oil. We have enough oil. We, we don't know. We, we don't know what happens with the, the nature. We don't know that. The controversy over Lofoten oil isn't just a local matter, however. It also provides a window into the much broader debate taking place across Norwegian society as a result of November's court case. By having this case, we have actually already managed to get a larger debate on oil versus climate in Norway. Because the issue with having to give all your resources to fighting to protect Lofoten, for example, means that you don't get the bigger picture you don't talk about the system, you talk about like one single case, one single area, and you don't talk about like the whole future of the oil industry. Having depended heavily on fossil fuels for several decades, a battle for Norway's national identity is now taking place. And at the heart of it all lies the uncomfortable reality that while championing itself as an environmental leader on the world stage, Norway is also Western Europe's biggest petroleum producer. This duality is now coming to a head this November, when Greenpeace and Nature and Youth will meet the government of Norway in court and attempt to stop Arctic drilling in its tracks. We are on the edge of handing our children a climate system in which the consequences will be out of their control. Catastrophic and irreversible change. And on the 14th of November, the world will come together to prove in a court of law that Arctic oil is unburnable carbon. As co-plaintiffs in the case, Nature and Youth believe that for young people, their future in particular is at stake in this fight. I joined purely as a youth rebel against my dad. Ingrid Schuldevier, leader of Nature and Youth. The first time I heard about the organization was when I was about like 10, 11, and my father really, really opposed the organization. He was like, they're just a bunch of hooligans. So <laughs> I find it like a bit difficult sometimes to, for someone who hasn't been part of the organization or worked at their office to actually explain what I do. 
have the same thing in the people I went to high school with. They're like, oh yes, we see you're doing all this stuff, but what are you really doing? So I invited my parents over to this camp to, to show them a bit. For nature and youth, tackling climate change requires us to act both locally and globally. Only by wedding the small and the big together will we rise to meet the challenge we face. This philosophy is at the core of the organization's thinking, and once every year, members from all the local chapters across the country meet up in one place for the annual camp. Today we had the first day of our summer camp, uh, which is going to be all week. It's election year, uh, so I think it's it's special and important. Yeah, I really want to like put old drilling as one of the biggest uh, uh, cases in the election, so yeah, make it big and make more people talk about it. I want other kids to have the same experience at this camp to feel that like they know everything they're talking about the case. I think it's really creates like a community and you feel like you're a part of something big. This year, with Nature and Youth bringing their own government to court, the gathering has taken on a much bigger dimension beyond even the borders of Norway. It has become a focal point for the global movement of climate justice cases unfolding across the world, an occasion for each part of this crucial human rights battle to unite together for the first time. Present at the camp this year are youth plaintiffs or children's trust from the United States who are taking the federal government to court. We're going to talk to you a little bit about that, um, what that's like in the United States. Climate justice campaigners from the Philippines. Good morning. Nice to be here. It's so beautiful in Lofoten. The senior women for climate protection from Switzerland. Hi. Good evening. I think it's it's a big opportunity for us to learn from each other and to draw experiences from other people's court cases. Uh, even though the the laws are different in different countries, it's uh, to do with the same thing and I think it gives strength to the case that we have uh, a bigger movement around the world that supports uh, our mission. Each of these individual cases sees citizens standing up and using the law within their own country to hold their governments and the oil industry to account. Climate change isn't caused by one particular country, however. We all burn oil and emit carbon dioxide as we go about our lives. Neither can it be solved by just one country acting alone and cutting back on emissions. Regardless of where we hold our own national citizenship, it is truly a global challenge for humanity, transcending nationalities and national borders. And to solve it, each of us needs to move beyond just thinking of ourselves as citizens of Ireland, the UK or the Philippines. We now need to think of ourselves as being global citizens with global responsibilities to each other. Though it sounds very modern, this global outlook actually dates back thousands of years, back to the dawn of civilization itself. The idea of citizenship comes from the city. It comes from the ancient Greek polis. Dr Tim Beasley-Murray, senior lecturer in European thought and culture at University College London. And the polis was formed way back in the beginnings of ancient Greece when human beings decided that they wanted to seek out different sorts of rulership. 
rather than rulership by various forms of sort of primitive kings, rather rulership that was violence, they thought that they wanted to come together and rule themselves as equals. So to be a citizen was to be member of a community of equals to whom you owed various responsibilities, but by virtue of which you had various rights. The very first person who declared himself a global citizen was Diogenes, Diogenes of Sinope, who was an extraordinary unconventional thinker. He lived in a barrel, he behaved disgracefully in public. Somebody came up to him and said, Diogenes, where are you from? And instead of saying that he belonged to a particular city, he said, I'm a citizen of the world, using the words in Greek that give us the word cosmopolitan. So polis is city, citizen, and cosmos is the world. And this was at least as unconventional and surprising to his audience than whatever the other strange things that he did. Because at the time, to think of yourself primarily as a human being sharing something in common with all of humanity, that was absolutely radical, absolutely shocking. Now, of course, that idea becomes less shocking today when because of the way in which what we do has an effect on the environment all over the planet, the way in which what we do economically has an effect, uh, affects everybody in the world, um, perhaps today that idea that was shocking in Diogenes' time has this, this incredible relevance. We can't ignore it. Together, we will make America strong again. We are at a curious historical moment when there seems to be a lack of agreement about which is more important, the global or the local. When Donald Trump in America says, We will make America great again. When Theresa May says, you know, in, in, in post-Brexit, But if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. You don't understand what the very word citizenship is. These are people saying, look, let's prioritize the local. Let's look after ourselves first and worry about the rest of the world later. I think that sort of thinking is misguided. The two are always intertwined. For climate change in particular, nowhere is this retreat into nationalism more apparent than in the United States which looks set to formally turn its back on the Paris Agreement. I am fighting every day for the great people of this country. Therefore, in order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. Regardless of Trump's decision to bow out, however, 21 youth plaintiffs from across the country had already decided, back in 2015, to take Obama's US federal government to court anyway. I think a very convincing argument as to why this case is important or applies to everyone is just the simple statistics on how much the United States contributes to climate change. We are, I think, under 5% of the global population, yet we are contributing 25% of fossil fuel emissions. Kieran Uman, one of the 21 youth plaintiffs. We'll need to uh, clap after every slide. But, um, <laughs> that's cool too. I feel very appreciated. But, um, so I was, it was the end of my high school career. I was just about to graduate and I was kind of burnt out of high school. And Kelsey, who I, I'd known for most of my life, sends me an email and she's like, hey, do you want to see the federal government? And I was like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds exciting. 
and that's how I got involved. Activism has been a really important part of my life, um, being connected to the land, being... Uh... I had been involved in climate justice since I was about 10. <laughs> Speaking in megaphones as a teenager at rallies around town, protesting, marching, writing letters to the editor. Kelsey Juliana, whose name appears in the formal title of the lawsuit, Juliana versus United States. You know, there was talk of maybe filing a federal lawsuit, youth out of, you know, states across the United States, kind of collectively coming together and holding our shared government, the federal government, accountable. You know, a lot of the people on this case, actually most of them, are under our voting age. I believe our youngest plaintiff just turned 10, (laughs) and Kelsey is our oldest at 21. And a lot of us, all of us, don't have the funds to go and meet with our politicians one-on-one or to lobby or uh, to put pressure... At its root, their case argues that the government, in failing to tackle climate change, has violated the youngest generation's constitutional rights to life, liberty and property. So the US Constitution is the basis of the government and it's the basis of the law of our country. Because of that, it is a very powerful tool in the court system. Essentially, we're using their system of checks and balances that we have in our, in, our, in our democracy. Their case is largely based on something called the public trust doctrine. It dates back to 535 BC ancient Roman Justinian times. You can try writing that on a cereal box. It's been used in our nation, the United States, since we were first colonized. And it is the idea that the government has a duty to protect resources in the public trust. The government has an obligation, a legal as well as a moral obligation, in protecting um, natural resources that you need to survive. So land, air, water. This is never applied to the atmosphere because traditionally humans have not been able to affect the atmosphere. Now we're in the Anthropocene era and humans are affecting the atmosphere. Initially, the fossil fuel industry decided that it wanted to intervene in the case and formally asked the courts to be able to appear alongside the government as defendants. Having the fossil fuel industry sign on as a co-defendant is just pure evidence of, of our claim. The courts duly obliged. Then, once admitted to the case, the oil industry and the government decided to flex their muscles together. We went to court to argue our place to be in court when the fossil fuel industry and the government attempted to dismiss our case before we could even go to trial. We won that um, oral arguments. We got the permission to go to court. The reply from the judge came as follows. Exercising my reasoned judgment, I have no doubt that the right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life is fundamental to a free and ordered society. Then, having hit a brick wall, the oil industry decided to appeal to the courts again, but this time they asked that they now be released from the case as defendants. My guess is out of fear, and they didn't believe that we would get this far. So now we're right back at the very beginning. Back to square one. Now it's 21 US youth versus the United States government. Now we are going to trial in February, and that is very exciting. February 5th is the start of about six weeks, so this will truly be David versus Goliath. Having Trump as the main uh, defendant in this case is really amazing because we get to go all over the world and say, we're suing Trump. But the real cool thing is that we are. We're holding our governments accountable, just like you all are doing. 
Critics of the idea of global citizenship like to think that there's some opposition between your local or your national identity and some sort of global identity. We live in a variety of contexts. Obviously, we're closest to, I don't know, our family and our friends, and then we feel closest to the people in our street or, or the city that we live in. Um, but then beyond that, at a broader level, we, we feel committed to our nation, and beyond that, to humanity as a whole. All the idea of global citizenship is saying is that we should try and treat and feel with and act towards those people far away from us with some of that same sense of commitment that we act towards those who are near to us. So it's not an either or, we're either local or global citizens, but rather we can be both. Co-plaintiffs Greenpeace have also travelled to the camp in their ship, the Arctic Sunrise. Having returned from their confrontation with Statoil Rig, the song Enabler, they bring with them Typhoon Haiyan survivor Joanna Sestento to share her story. So first of all, I would like to thank all of you for this opportunity to share a big part of myself to you guys. Also aboard the ship and is climate campaigner Desiree Lianos D from the Philippines. I think it's important for people to hear Joanna's stories because it's so easy to feel disconnected in this world. It's like your neighbor's house is on fire. And for you to sit there and just say, eh, not gonna do anything about it. It's just so inhumane. Hi everyone. Good morning. Nice to be here. I come from the Philippines, so it's familiar. <laughs> we have really beautiful beaches too, but the water is swimmable in the Philippines. <laughs> Desiree is leading the charge to bring about an investigation in the Philippines into potential human rights violations of 45 fossil fuel companies. There was this legal petition that came out and it was filed with the Commission on Human Rights of the Philippines. And it's the first time ever that a human rights institution entertained a case like this. Because these big polluters have contributed 63% of global emissions and it's just holding them accountable. Their case doesn't ask for any financial compensation, but rather seeks to clarify the plans of these companies to tackle climate change seriously. Because unless they do that, these people won't really be given the same peace of mind of running away from stronger storms. And well, what does this really mean for people? It's people are taking back their rights. However, Shell, one of the companies invited to participate, are attempting to stop the investigation. Next year, the public hearings are set to happen. And in the public hearings, we'll have these companies and the petitioners face to face together. Global citizenship in environmental context is realizing that we don't simply have responsibility to those who are near us in time, those who are alive at the same time as us, but we also have a responsibility for those people who are far away from us in time, in the future, and that our actions will affect them as well. For those who think that climate change is just for young people to fight, meet the Swiss senior women for climate protection. Faced with the climatic emergency, it was clear for me. Anna Marer, 
co-president of the association who represents the French-speaking part of Switzerland. Doing nothing uh, was not an option. And here's the other co-president, Rosemary Widler-Velti, the German-speaking representative. It was for me really the best moment and the best thing could happen. In 2016, 539 women aged 65 and older joined together and filed a case to force the Swiss federal government to reduce the country's emissions, in line with the two-degree limit of the Paris Agreement. And it was a real beautiful decision. Since filing the case, their association has grown even further and now has almost 800 members. We send a request to the federal government asking them to take more ambitious measures to force the government to take stronger action on climate change. In January of this year, they decided to bring their message to the World Economic Forum in Davos, the annual gathering in the Swiss Alps for the world's wealthiest and most powerful people. Thank you, everybody, for coming out uh, this early evening to talk about a critically important issue, how we... And how will the energy sector drive the transition towards a carbon-neutral global economy? We were 10 women, and we wanted to touch people who have influence, of course. To tell to the world leaders that they have uh, to do what they promised. The police, however, said they weren't allowed to hand out any flyers. So we made cookies. Earth-shaped cookies, to be specific. In giving them the cookies and telling them what we want to do, there were nice meetings with political people from there. And at the end, we did show some banners <laughs> who we write. But then they were coming, the soldiers, and said, oh, you are not allowed to make a demonstration, you have to go away. And so we left. For Anna and Rosemary, climate change isn't a distant threat lurking decades into the future. It has already impacted older people, and older women in particular. This is what makes their case unique. In Switzerland, you cannot go to court claiming that you stand to be harmed in the future. You have to prove in a concrete way that you are already being harmed. And for the Swiss senior women, they have their key piece of evidence ready and waiting. Health warnings are being issued across Europe as temperatures reach potentially dangerous levels in many places. Authorities are urging particular care of the elderly, small children... Elder women about 75 years, they are especially affected in the Great Hills with problems of cardiac or respiration and so on. And so... The 2003 heatwave in Europe saw temperatures soar to over 40 degrees across the continent, the hottest summer on record. The death toll from this major natural catastrophe is now known to be in excess of 70,000 people, with older women being hit the hardest. And on their day in court, the Swiss senior women will point to the overwhelming scientific evidence which links climate change directly to more intense heatwaves. With so much at stake for both the Swiss senior women and the Swiss government, this case looks set to go all the way to the European Court of Human Rights. But of course, we don't take action only for us. We take action for all 
Older people are responsible to the future generation, and it's so very important to be leaders too. And I will conclude like that. In Anna and Rosemary's lifetime, the practice and potential of environmentalism has changed profoundly. For almost all of human history, building a global movement has been pretty much impossible. News and communication just spread too slowly, either on foot, horseback, by post. Even with the telephone, you could only talk to one person at a time. Write the number down. Just what is this main artery of the information superhighway? In the last Every decade, however, this reality has been turned on its head. Look up any movie, see reviews, see what your friends like, have it suggest based on what you liked. The digital revolution of the internet and social media has changed the game completely. Instant communication amongst millions of people across the world can now take place at the touch of a finger. New online platforms allow mass participation and coordination to reach across all seven continents the idea at once. The is called internet.org. Its target, the five billion people around the globe without access to the net. At a time when humanity faces such huge global challenges, the means to build a global response has now arrived. And at the camp in the Lofoten Islands, the gathering of climate cases from around the world is tapping into this new capability. Hello, welcome on board the Arctic Sunrise. My name is Ben and we are here in the staggeringly beautiful, although a little bit windy, Lofoten Islands up in Norway's Arctic. Holding a Facebook Live event on board the Arctic Sunrise, Greenpeace and Nature and Youth compile one of the world's largest witness statements from people across the planet inscribing some of these messages of defiance onto a giant metal globe. Uh, and, and we're hoping to, to, to fill the globe uh, with statements from all over the world. Uh, but really this is all about getting your help to make our court case and our fight to protect the Arctic as strong as possible. Could you explain and what the case is about? Today, climate is not really considered when awarding new lives. This wave of international support will also be submitted to the Oslo District Court as evidence when they meet the Norwegian government in November. Under 265,000 people have already signed up to support our case uh, in the courts in Oslo. Phenomenal number. Um, but we'd like to see that number raise up today. New technology may not only be making the world smaller and more connected, bringing the ideals of global citizenship into reach. The communication revolution we find ourselves in may also be changing the nature of power itself, shifting the balance away from the few and into the hands of the many. Well, there's no doubt that there is a big shift in power underway. Um, and certainly, I, I think you can best think about this in terms of two different ways you can exercise power. Jeremy Haymans, CEO of Purpose and co-founder of Avaz, the world's largest online citizens movement with more than 40 million members. One way is old power. Now, old power is best thought of as a currency. The more that you 
have of that currency, the more powerful you are. The job with old power is to hoard it. Now, that's contrasted to a different way of exercising power, where you think of power as a current. It's something that you can't really hoard. You can't control it. You can shape the direction of it. And so the job with new power is to channel it. And it's most forceful, like water or electricity, when that power surges, you know, through the actions of many. So in a world in which we're hyperconnected, it is possible for the first time in history to engage in the kind of networked forms of organizing that have unprecedented scale, velocity, uh, geographic reach, and intensity. It's not that networks are new, but what is new is our ability to create truly transnational movements, movements that very quickly have the potential to affect change. So, you know, the possibility of new power is you can have people in every corner of the world acting together as part of something much bigger, acting in solidarity with each other. And at the same time, you, you can be hyper-local, right? And you can be very targeted. Hello, women of Massachusetts. Reflecting on the extraordinary moment of the women's marches around the world, which is a great example of being both hyper-local and global, right? That sense that there was a women's march happening all over the world really contributed to that sense that it was um, historic and that it was about a cultural moment that transcended just one guy, Donald Trump. Uh, after those marches, there were then thousands of huddles uh, around the US and the world where people who'd been to that march actually met in their homes, often with strangers, um, and made commitments to act um, and to organise together beyond that march, right? And I think it's moments like that, and again, that was enabled by technology, that these kinds of new power moments don't just fizzle out, right? That you can sustain that energy uh, beyond the initial surge. And that's always one of the challenges with these kinds of um, uh, movements, especially ones that are driven by social media. Getting people organising, planning offline, uh, you know, allows you to make that, to bridge that in ways that can be very, um, very powerful. The efficacy of movement building has never been greater in a world that is hyper-connected. And so it's remarkable what individuals can do and being part of the fight on climate change is being part of the fight that's a, frankly one of the biggest social movements in the history of the world. And it needs to be. And so, you know, I'd encourage folks to get out there um, and be part of this movement because there's enormous reasons for hope, even as we confront this challenge. For all that you can stress the benefits of and the, the opportunities that are provided by digital connection you know, for ways in which people come together, the real still has its place. I mean, let's think, let's go back to ancient Greece again. What, what was it? It was citizens leaving their homes and coming down and congregating in the agora and discussing face to face. And I think the, the challenge of global citizenship is to create some, some modern form of the polis that isn't just some space in the city of Athens, but exists on a global scale. You know, we could see some of that coming together on the squares in the Arab Spring or in Demonstration demonstrations in 1989 in Eastern Europe, real change happens when people come together. 
I've been so impressed by this youth group in Norway. We don't have anything quite like this in the US. They're so large and organized and like passionate and just seeing so many like hundreds of youth of a pretty like wide variety of ages all being so invested in their futures and the larger global picture. For me, I think the diversity of these cases, whether across uh, regions or across age groups, it's, it's very telling of the strength of the movement. And it comes from very different people. It comes from young people, older people, and from all the regions. But it tells us a story of what brings us together. If we win this case, I would like to celebrate it with people I met from Philippines, from USA, from Norway. It, was, it would be beautiful. If the Norwegian youth were to win and just say no to oil, that would be an incredible feat for the movement and it would give us inspiration and hope to carry on in our, in our battle to you know, secure our constitutional rights as well. Everything has shown that if we're going to get something done, we need people standing up together and doing something about it and not actually demanding a change. And I just think it's really important that we, we create the bigger lines uh, against fossil fuels in the world. And I believe that the, these climate uh, cases are part of that uh, mobilization. These cases from around the world are bringing ordinary citizens together, using human rights to force their governments to act on a challenge which affects us all. Taking the battle into the courts is only one way to confront climate change, however. There is another way. In the next episode of Unburnable, far north in the Arctic waters, we explore how an entirely different kind of confrontation takes place. Arctic Sunrise, this is the Norwegian Coast Guard Western Nordcup. Copy that. Is it, uh, can I understand that you did not intend to comply with the orders uh, you were given uh, earlier? When Greenpeace ship the Arctic Sunrise set sail for Corpfjell. Nordcup, this is the Arctic Sunrise. The most northerly area opened for drilling by the Norwegian government in the 23rd licensing round. To remove this peaceful protest against oil from the here they meet Statoil's exploration rig, the Sanga Enabler, face to face, and deliver a message from across the world. We are here to defend the planet for future generations. It is a historic mistake that Statoil is making, and the Norwegian government are going against the Paris Convention and drilling for oil when the world does not need any more fossil fuels. This madness needs to stop, and we will maintain our peaceful protest in a safe way as we can, as we have been conducting up until now. Arctic Sunrise, this is Norwegian Coast Guard Western Norcup. Copy that, you do not intend to follow the orders you received earlier and you will continue your protest. That is correct. If you've enjoyed listening to Unburnable and feel that this is a story that should be heard, please share online and rate this episode on iTunes. And if you want to find out more about what you can do to support the court case, please visit savethearctic.org forward slash unburnable. This episode of Unburnable was brought to you by the team at Radio Wolfgang. It featured Marion Franson, Tor Esaisen, Bjorn Erkolflath, Bjorn Rist, 
Frieder Haugen Utna, Marion Fjelda Larsen, Ingrid Schuldeweyer, Arnstein Vestra, Tim Beasley Murray, Kelsey Juliana, Kieran Uman, Joanna Sestento, Desiree Lianos D, Rosemary Vidler Velti, Anna Marer, Jeremy Hamans, Mike Finken, and was narrated by me, Cormac McAuliffe. The producers were Ivor Manley, Natalia Rodriguez, and Cormac McAuliffe. Sound design by Ivor Manley, with original music by Paul Fitzpatrick. The executive producers were Harry Watson and Colm Roach. Thanks for listening. <laughs>